What I thought it sounded like was if the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack became sentient. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like it's like soundtrack for like a sassy robot movie. Yeah. If Matthew Wilder of Break My Stride did it. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I explore a musical mystery of sorts, one that began for me about five years ago when I stumbled into a trove of LP records that to all appearances represented the quintessence of major label corporate rock in the 1980s. Yet the weird thing was that as familiar as these bands looked, I'd never listened to or even heard of any of them, despite having come of age in the 1980s. And it made me realize that for every successful major label act like Def Leppard or Hall & Oates or Motley Crue, there were dozens of major label acts that, for whatever reasons, never made it big. Now, I'd reckon the story of the bands that didn't make it and why they didn't make it is just as emblematic of a given era of music as the bands that did. So to help me tell this story and unravel this rock and roll mystery, I brought in a couple of music gurus from my hometown, Jed Bodwin, who hosts the syndicated public radio show Strange Currency, and Michael Carmody, a veteran musician and music collector who describes himself as a factotum arts and music weirdo. Together we went through this stack of LPs and picked 10 overlooked albums spanning the years between 1980 and 1989, and did a deep dive into the DNA of corporate rock music during the decade of mullets and hairspray. You might want to refer back to the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate, not just because this is a good way to track down the labels, producers, and musicians mentioned, but also because the fashion sensibilities and cover art were so fantastically over-the-top and, in retrospect, kind of embarrassing in the 1980s. So for your enjoyment, we've included pictures of all the albums and bands we talk about. Again, that's rolfpotts.com deviate. If you were involved with any of these bands, or even if you just enjoyed them as a fan of music in the 1980s, feel free to contact me at deviateatrolfpots.com and tell your story. I'm actually really curious about that, since as we point out as we listen to the music, a lot of it is pretty good, and I think in America we overemphasize commercial success when in fact the simple joy of making music or even just loving music during that time in history is a legitimate story in and of itself. So here's a peek into those would-be hits of the 1980s as recorded at KMUW Studios late last month. Now the story behind the music we're listening to specifically involves a bunch of albums I found in a thrift store in North Central Kansas a few years ago. And there was this strange cognitive dissonance because every album cover looked like something I may have been familiar with in the 80s, but I didn't know any of these bands. Right. And there were there was Leather Wolf, and it sort of looked like White Snake, but right. I'd never heard of Leather, Leather Wolf. And there was Suicide in the Next, who sort of looked like maybe they were trying to write a Joan Jett and the Blackhearts vibe, but I'd never heard of Suicide in the Next. And so I actually sent them to a friend, a musician friend of mine in Seattle just as a joke. And I think I started with 22 albums. And I think by the time he got his 22nd album, the, the joke was no longer funny to him. <laughs> he was just burdened with the forgotten music of the 1980s. But <clears throat> now that I'm doing this podcast, I'm, I want to tie this episode into the Grammys, which every year commemorate the biggest successes of the music industry. And I think what we have in this random collection of albums I found in a thrift store bin all of which are major label records. It's the history of bands that are not just one-hit wonders. They're not, they didn't even have a hit. They're bands that, um, and each album has its own story. But uh, I think we can learn a lot about music in the 80s and maybe do some speculation as well just by listening to these albums. Uh, so 
let's launch right in. We have 10 albums uh, that cover the span of the 1980s. We're going to start with uh, Suicide in the Next. So... take this one well i uh if you're looking at this record cover there's a very kind of black heartsy looking band uh four dudes black t-shirts you know red converse shoes and in the middle of them is uh, a brunette young woman in a red striped uh, sweater and uh, cowboy boots and they look very tough it's on a back street in an alley somewhere and uh, you really do get that vibe like uh, oh, this is like a Joan Jett kind of thing. But then you listen to the record, and to me, uh, I thought she came off more, almost at first, like a Lady John Cougar, mm-hmm. a, little, a little bit. You know, there was kind of there's some real kind of pop songwriting there. But um, you know, it's like I don't know why this person wasn't wasn't a star. There's certainly some singles on this that could have been, and I guess you know there were some singles released, and uh, she or the whole band appeared in a couple of movies. She actually appeared on a, a podcast that I, I listen to quite regularly called The Hustle um, with John Lamarau, and what he does is he tracks down artists who either had kind of a hit or came close, and they were, this band was really one of those acts that just, it, it was really a case of not getting the breaks, it seems. Right. It seems like it was like, you know, management or label would want Who this. Who was promoting this. Right. You know? Yeah. And it was just never quite the, the right time. And I think as we go through this, we'll see that story kind of reemerging. So much of what makes a band successful is, is down to, did they get... The right airplay. Did they yeah, get this? Is 1980. This yeah. is like one year before MTV. Yeah, exactly. You know, had this come out a year later and they had a good video out, you know, it was might have been she might have been a huge star. Would yeah. Just to contextualize, 1980, um, Christopher Cross, right, um, <laughs> won won a Grammy. Pat Benatar was big, and actually, Pat yeah. Benatar dropped like an album a year. And there's yes. some Pat Benatar kind of vibe on this record as well, and maybe For that's sure. partial part of this just because she's a big, bold female lead singer in that era I mean you're automatically going to draw that but you get way more of Pat Benatar than like a Debbie Harry out of it right I think you know yeah there's also a song the police Regatta de Blanc won some sort of Grammy that year and they sort of have a sort of faux reggae-ish yeah, pop yeah. song was on this, this album there was a young girls at the name of that yeah one? Mm-hmm. I remember that one specifically when listening to this it was like oh this has that yeah. everybody had to have one on the record at that time you know there was always like, oh we got to have like that kind of Caribbean vibe on at least one tune. Yeah, it's interesting how that sort of uh, infiltrated. I mean, even even Rush experimented with uh, reggae or ska beats mm-hmm. during that time. It was making its way into all forms and of progressive. Spirit of Radio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We got that reggae breakdown in the middle of it. Just, yeah. I don't know where it's true. Didn't uh, Led Zeppelin's Dear Maker? Yeah. yeah. That, um, was, that was a couple years before this. Many yeah. years earlier. Yeah. So yeah. it, it, it's interesting how you can you can see just as we move through the '80s with these albums, what was popular, what was being experimented with, what 
was successful in trying to be mimicked. Other bands that were on the Billboard charts that year was Tom Petty, oh, sure. Refugee, Don't Do Me Like That. Yeah, and this band too, you know, you could hear a little bit of that kind of Tom Petty. There's a, you know, like roots rock kind of thing happened on, on this suicide record easily. That, that was in the zeitgeist at the time, you know, guitars, melodic solos, you know, pop songwriting structures, and it's all there, really. Yeah. Did you guys like Suicide in the Next? And any favorite songs? Um, what was it? It was the first song on there, Gimme Love, Gimme Pain, is like they put that first for a reason, clearly. Yeah. That's like a grabber of a tune. Right yeah. There. And that that's one that there's no reason why that couldn't have been a staple of rock radio that we would still be listening to today. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like like the the album itself is fine. It probably would have been one of those that I bought and then it kind of would drift to the back of the record collection at some point, and then I'd occasionally get sentimental for it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> suicide yeah. record. Well, I've wondered, just because you guys could disagree, but none of the music we've listened to thus far has been bad. You know, There's been catchy songs on all of these albums that I've never heard yeah, of. Yeah, none of these people are unprofessional. You yeah. know, I mean, there's various levels of craft in all of it. And so I wonder if there's some young hipster somewhere who are going to start like a uh, signed band hipster music retro revolution where suddenly Susad and Lilac Angels are um, being listened to by young people. Uh, because in a way, this, this music feels very emblematic of its era. Um, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Almost all these bands to me, it's like they're in the they're like in the minor leagues. They're like ready for their break to come up to bat. And at any moment that could have happened, but mostly didn't. Yeah. Well, maybe when we're all done, we can speculate about why. Because as we move from Suicide, who's our first one, to Leather Wolf, 1989, which is our last one, we, we cover some interesting ground. It's true. And I don't know if I have an answer, but it would be fun to speculate. But let's keep moving through the albums. By the way, my song, there's a song called I, I, Me, Me on this, which sort of has a rock lobster party riff yeah. in it, yeah. which was a lot of fun. Um, any other comments about Suicide before we move on to 1982? I mean, I think I think one thing that we see is I can distinguish in a lot of cases the bands that were organic and had done club work. Um, they knew how to structure a set, therefore they knew we need this. We need a party song. We need a. I was just thinking you know, that. Yeah, where's where we're going to get people on the dance floor? Yeah, and so it's uh, it's it's interesting because I think in that era, especially, you had I feel like more bands that did a lot of time working the bars, playing even in cover bands before. You know, yeah. that group came together. And that's where you learn that craft. Instead of guys who are like just shredders who get stuck together by a producer or something like that as far, part of a project. Yeah. And it feels like we'll run across some of that as we move I, through the 80s. I believe we will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's move on. We don't have 1981 represented, but 1982 is Spies.
1982, Toto 4 was album of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Cougar, Hurt So Good, was song of the year at the Grammys. Yep. Um, Olivia Newton-John, Jay Giles Band, mm-hmm. The Go-Go's, I Journey. The Sky, yeah. Alan Parsons. Steve, Stevie Nicks, Edge of 17, was 1982. Wow. Yeah. So that's the context for this band, Spies, which has one of the more curious Dungeons & Dragons-looking cover art on it. Yeah. And it, it's like it looks like some sort of clean-shaven uh, elf character looking through a 20-sided dice. He almost looks a little bit like Martin Freeman in the Lord of the Rings movies a little bit, but a little hunkier. But then he's, <laughs> he's staring right into the, you know, the eye of the artist, and he's holding his giant crystal like a diamond up over his eye and looking right at you and spies. <laughs> it's it's really corny cover art and it almost it almost prejudiced me. I I um I actually enjoyed yeah. spies but um I did too and I was surprised too because yeah this looks like one of the official Dungeons and Dragons playbooks covers from like the 80s. You know, it's it's an oil painting or charcoal drawing or something in color here and it's very serious and spies the band name is spelled S P Y S which I don't like it's an acronym for something. But That's exactly. Yeah. What, what would it stand for? Well, what do we know about the backstory of Spies? So this uh, this band has uh, Al Greenwood, who was a member of Foreigner early on. Um, and Foreigner, uh, don't forget, those guys were coming from, you had uh, Mick Jones, the guitarist who was coming out of the British band Spooky Tooth. You had uh, members right. who had come out of King Crimson. So you really did initially have kind of a... a a band that had some power behind it. It was kind of proggy. Yeah, they were known entities. And then uh, around 1980 or so, Foreigner shifts up, Al Greenwood is out, and the sound becomes a little more pop-oriented, which is interesting. I don't think it came down to a... a Same thing happened to Journey, slowly over time. Yeah, I don't think it necessarily came down to a, a... you know, Al Greenwood, uh, the keyboardist, going in a, a saying, I, I don't want to be part of that pop direction because we certainly hear that in Spies. It is pop oriented. There's good songs on that. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of bands from that time like Aldo Nova a little bit yeah. or um, Saga, even maybe a little bit. Definitely a Saga influence. Yeah. And those there. weren't bands I was super into, but they wrote pop songs. I mean, like hooky tunes, yep. you know, they were part of that whole, there was this whole thing happening in the 80s. Even like guys like Quiet Riot, where they were like writing melodic, hooky pop tunes, but they were heavy. Yeah. You know? And that was different than power pop, which was also happening. It was like, but it wasn't quite metal. Yeah. It's just this hard rock. I think Spies, uh, for me, one of the things you mentioned, Saga, and of course, Saga had just a couple of, you know, Canadian band coming out of Toronto, coming up just a few years after Rush, right, and doing really well in their native country, and then Germany, but never really able to break it no. in in the states. On and, the loose was like the yeah. big hit here, which was great. Yeah, but yeah, I don't think I know of another song that charted at all here. Yeah, well, I think that. Big in Japan, you know, that throwaway 80s phrase is, it has a source, you know, sure. the idea that a lot of these bands um, uh, got signed to labels and were successful and even charted overseas, but never charted for whatever reason here. And again, later on, we can speculate on that. Yeah. Um, I wrote down for Spies uh, that it was anthemic and catchy synth rock. There's yeah. Like, there's a lot of synthesizers on these it's, on these albums. It's rainbow-esque. Yeah. I felt like it was that kind of that late 70s or i mean this could have been come out a few years earlier and, and it would have still been contemporary i think yeah like this is what 82 yeah that could have been 78 yeah most of it you know and it really is kind of like 
the early foreigner stuff or uh, like I say Rainbow is another vibe I got off this I actually liked this record like I would put this on at home yeah and dig it because there are tunes on it yeah are there any tunes specifically I, I know there was a video for the song She Can't Wait oh um, that, in, that involved shirtless men with feathered hair um, like uh, leaning into the camera and like almost head banging on the keyboard uh, and so it was very much of its time. I think had MTV kicked in by 82? I think so. Yeah, it was on the air, but it wasn't nationwide. Like, we didn't get it in my small hometown until 84. Yeah. So people were getting it in a lot of the country. And yeah. so the, the visual aesthetic of the video was very much of its time. Yeah. I mean, there was just a lot of blue stage lights through smoke with guys in their feathered hair staring into the camera. Uh, whereas musically, this doesn't feel, I think, you know, this is almost like a foreigner spinoff band. I mean, can we characterize it that way? Well, maybe. Yeah. I think also the other kind of vibe I got off this was it reminded me of kind of almost like the clocks here in town. There were sure. parts of it that were like the keyboard stuff was going away from like the kind of Moog stuff into like the next level, like the Yamaha era. Yeah. Like you can almost hear the... the the changing of the guard yeah. when it comes to like the keyboard sound, like maybe a little almost survivory yeah. in places. Yeah. Here comes, here comes the DX seven. <laughs> here comes the DX seven, which for better or for worse, you know? Yeah. I think it's an interesting, there is this tug of war in eighties music. I think that goes on between keyboards and guitar um, you know, of course, you famously have Queen in the 70s, no synthesizers at all. Right. And, and many bands would use that as a, a kind of brand and others would full on embrace it. Right. Um, and for, the original Human League, for instance, they were yeah. like, we're not using anything but keyboards, you know. Yeah. Well, this is sort of a graveyard of could have been bands. Yeah. I just there's a lot of synth. I, um, yeah, it was the time. It was um, the time. And front to back in the 80s, there was synth and it maybe sounds like. They were experimenting a little bit, you know, taking um, textures that may have been guitar textures and, and, and making them keyboard textures at the time. It's easier uh, to play things sometimes if you can program it ahead, you know. The other thing I thought of is, I've thought of this numerous times before, is in the early 80s, I remember these all like kind of new wave bands were happening, and I thought of them all as being like synth bands, like Duran Duran. And then I go back now, or Missing Persons, and what I go back now and I listen to them, what I hear is the guitar. Yeah. Or Devo, for instance. You know, you think of Devo as being really synthy and stuff, and you listen to the first several records, and they're guitar records that have synths on them. Yeah. And it's like, it's funny how my perspective has changed. At the time, that was what really seemed dominant, and it was like, ooh, listen to these keyboards. But now, it's like I listen back on it, and I was just like, man, Andy Taylor is underrated, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Warren Cucurillo and Missing Persons was absolutely. incredible, dude. Absolutely, yeah. I, I want to speak to some of the musical specificity, too, because even just looking at the famous Grammy songs and Billboard songs as I moved through the 80s really brought, brought back strong associations of where I was in life. You know, these were sixth-grade songs or right. yeah. uh, sophomore and high school songs. In, in ways that almost some of these bands were so familiar sounding, if not specific, that you could almost populate an 80s movie with their songs. You could license their movie for cheaper. And it's, it's one weird thought I had is it's as if people in 2017 are trying to recreate 80s music in, with these unfamiliar songs. It's funny because when I was making notes on these, prepare for this, I made a note. I said, if you made a mixtape from these, you could try to get people to guess which 80s movie soundtrack they were listening to. <laughs> and they would make all these guesses, but none of them would be right. Because right. so much of this music sounds generic to its time. Like it's really trying to fit a market niche that's already been defined. Yeah. I could have, I, I would have said with Spies, uh, on the negative side of it, 
it was like uh, I could picture it, uh, imagine it being featured in uh, films that I would see on uh, Cinemax at three o'clock <laughs> in the morning. You know, uh, bad comedies or right. or late night booby movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, there's some other some uh, other albums on this. Uh, there's a sort of a Cinemax vibe, sort of yeah. again a very generic <laughs> montage se- sequence with synth. Yeah. Uh, but let's let's transition into the breaks, which is 1983. Some um, some context. Pat Benatar's "Love Is a Battlefield" came out that year. Uh, the Police had a number. We're at number one. Um, Billy Jean, Michael Jackson uh, was that year. The Human League, Culture Club, the Safety Dance came out that year. Um, what else? Uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart, the okay. Eurythmics, uh, and so I think I mentioned a lot of female bands because this is a female fronted band. And I don't know how how do you describe this album cover? The Breaks. It's funny because. It looks almost like a poster for a John Hughes movie yeah. or something. At the top, it has written in what appears to be like handwriting, the breaks, almost in the style of the Friends opening sequence, Friends, but it says the breaks. And it's got these four guys on the left side who are all in white and purple and like splashes of pastels because it's 83. And on the right side, you have the lead singer of the group who's this lovely young woman who I believe was married to one of these guys, actually. And she is full-on like Valley Girl 83 in pink and lavender with a big belt and you know ankle socks and kind of a mullet that's like a big shag on top but long in the back and big dangly earrings it's totally she could be Molly Ringwald yeah well looking at this I'm thinking like these guys should sue John Hughes because <laughs> the visual aesthetic this yeah. is before his big teen movie phase it's right. maybe two years before um, you know, 16 Candles, but I mean, it really, it either, okay, I'm sure John Hughes didn't actually do the marketing for his right. movies, but the visual aesthetic is so, mm-hmm. so John Hughes. What I thought immediately when I saw it and then listened to it was that someone heard the Patti Smythe scandal hits from like 81 or 2 because they had, they were a hot band at the time. And I, I think this band was signed because they were like, oh, this could be our scandal. Because yeah. they look and their sound is very vibe like that to me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting, too, to talk a little bit about the, the label, that this comes out on RCA. And RCA was one of those labels that was struggling a little bit in the 80s. Because they, they're traditionalists. Yeah, they'd had mm-hmm. Elvis. And yeah. uh, Elvis's passing, of course, was a, was a huge loss to them, a huge hit in that way, because there wasn't going to be new music. They'd also had Harry Nilsson, and Harry Nilsson's commercial credibility had dried up by that point right um so i think this is a label trying to have a hit trying to connect with a younger audience and i think uh really uh although rca would later have autograph um that was a label that was struggling for those mainstream sounds at that time and this band to me is kind of an amalgamation of of you know patty smith Mm -hmm. patty smythe um um 
Stevie Nicks, maybe? S- Stevie Nicks, The Pretenders. Sure. Um, again, a, a band I kind of sensed that had done some time in the bars. Yeah, I feel like this band was not put together. Like, these people had played a bunch of clubs. Well, yeah. they're they're from Memphis, which I found was an interesting detail. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting because Memphis, uh, you know, has that tradition of of soul and R and B, but there were interesting bands that came out of there over over time, but not a not necessarily in the eighties a, a big music hub, you know, the way it had been in the in the sixties. And a, a bit of trivia on this is that it's produced by Vinnie Poncia, who worked with Ringo Starr in his late seventies era. And also produced uh, produced uh, Kiss's Dynasty and Unmasked albums. Wow! He worked on Peter Chris's uh, solo album. Wow. So there you go. <laughs> A lot of music history going on here. Wow! The um, I think they stayed in Memphis. I, I watched a video of the song. What is it? She wants you. Yeah. And. The band looks great, actually. Yeah. This is a beautiful woman uh, with a great voice. Her husband is a, is a musician. I mean, there's the the there's the the things. That, the video is like a house with white curtains and wind blowing through it, and like you know, couples unhappy with each other or something. Men with mullets standing in front of lighthouses. You know, sort of the the random visual tropes of of the 1980s. But they looked good. They they sounded good. Um, and it's a poppy sound. You know, it's yeah. um. What did you think of her voice? I mean, a capable singer, you know. Yeah, like I say, yeah. if they'd had some better hooks, you know, they might have parlayed that into a hit single. I mean, clearly they had yeah. distribution and everything on their big label. Yeah, yeah. I felt I felt like it's one of those cases where you have a vocalist who sounds just enough like somebody else, where you go, mm, "That's that's not them," and kind of lacks their distinct. Maybe it wasn't a uh, characteristic enough, or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. I was pleasant, but yeah, yeah. I, I can hardly remember any of the individual tunes on this. Yeah, I think um, you know. There again, too, you can talk about uh, this. This might have been a band that matured into something different with a second or third album, because you're also right. looking at an era where a band wasn't expected to come out of the gates on fire. It's like the Blue Angel record before Cindy Lauper went solo. Yeah. It's like a pretty good record, but it just hadn't developed into like the full capacity of what was possible there. Yeah. Yeah, you can sort of see why they were signed and then also see why they didn't catch on fire, you know. Yeah. That they were good, but somehow didn't have all the pieces in place to really make a big hit. One way I have been trying to indicate how retroactively they have been popular is by looking at YouTube listens because all of these um, albums are available, or at least tracks from them are available on YouTube. And there was about 9,000 had listened to uh, She Wants You, that video. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is about the same number as, as Spies, or no, as Sussad. Spies had more. It would make so. you wonder how many of those hits came from around Memphis. Well, that's true. By yeah, like yeah. middle aged people who were like, oh man, the breaks. I remember we used to go see them play and, you know, that kind of local nostalgia. Well, a lot of the comments on YouTube were specific to that thing nostalgia, seeing the breaks, you know, hoping that they would make it big and, and put Memphis on the map again. And thing. I believe the guy that was married to the singer passed away a couple of years ago when I was poking around. It seemed he had, he had cancer. Yeah, Pat Taylor, he died in 2015. He was part of a band called Village Sound. It's like garage rock and or like sort of 60s trippy garage rock. I see. Um, and it's pretty good. I, it, it makes you realize how many minor hits or regional hits there were in that older era yeah. of rock music. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, let's move on to 1985. Um, oh, man, th- let's. This is Fury. Uh, and we, we're going to skip 1984 uh, just because that's what the thrift <laughs> bin gave us. Uh, this is this is Fury. Contextualized. This was the, the year of Phil Collins' No Jacket Required. We Are the World was 1985. Sting came out with Russians. Uh, we Built the City by Starship. Don Henley, uh, Boys of Summer. Wham! was around this time. Like a Virgin came out. Hall of Oats, uh, Out of Touch, uh, was a hit. And maybe I'll just stop. Well, actually, Pat Benatar once again had an album out this year. But what were you going to say? Live Aid. Live Aid, yeah. 85. Yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and, and then this. And then this. So how do we describe these gentlemen on the cover of this very green-tinted album called Fury from 1985. Imagine you've gone to your department store in your neighborhood where they take the studio photographs like Olin Mills, and they have a deep green textured background instead of gray, and it's got maybe a little yellow fill spotlight behind it to kind of just give it some pop. And then you got these two guys out front, and the guy on the left reminds me, do you remember the band Sly Fox? Yeah, yeah. That was a duo that had like one hit in the yeah. 80s around the same time. Yeah. Let's go all the way. The guy on the left looks like one of the guys from Sly Fox, the white one. And then the guy on the right here, I'm not sure. He has a mustache that seems unfortunate in 1985. That's more like a 1978 mustache, right? Well, you can see the, the photographer saying to the guy on the left, well, hold your chin up more and tilt your head. And yeah. then the guy on the right, will comb that mustache a few more times so it's as fluffy as your hair. I, it's, it's just not the right time for that mustache. Like in 78, the guy on the right would have been like perfect in any disco. Like yeah, he looks yeah. like he's out of Saturday Night Fever. He's got his hair is perfectly coiffed. And then what's his, what is he wearing? It's, it's almost like Iron Fist on his day off in this green open shirt with like yellow brocade or something around the cuff. It's interesting. It sort of travels forward and backward in time because there's sort of a Richard Marxishness to the yeah. guy on the left. Agreed. Yeah. 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 So musically, what are what are we? This is a sort of a different texture than some of the other albums in this pile. Um, one thing that bugged me with this album, and this is uh, 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 produced by Felix Cavalera, uh, of all people, who we know from. That was the Young Rascals guy. Yeah. 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 Good love. Uh, you know, staple of 60s music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's produced by him. In the mix on this, I'm not particular about mixes very often, but the mix on this was just dreadful. Brutal. Yeah, it yeah. was dreadful. It sounded really 
uh, like something somebody had maybe done on their four track recorder. I didn't listen to side two of this. Yeah, yeah. I listened to side one and I was like, okay, yeah. I've had enough fury. Yeah. What I thought it sounded like was if the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack became sentient. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like it's like soundtrack for like a sassy robot movie. Yeah. If Matthew Wilder of Break My Stride did it. Yeah. Well, there's a pulsing poppiness to this, you yeah. know, that you can see people getting things done in an 80s movie to the to the <laughs> strains <laughs> of, <laughs> yeah, of fury. The DX7 has come. At yeah. this point. Yeah. Now, what's the DX7? It's the Yamaha keyboard that revolutionized keyboards during the height of the synth era. Like, the old synthesizers were expensive, and then all of a sudden, they came up, I think it's like the FM-style synthesizers, were way cheaper, and they came with all these cool sound effects on them that you would recognize from every 80s record. Like, whoosh, yeah. and, and, bring. <laughs> Well, this, this is the LeBlanc brothers. Fury is uh, Robbie LeBlanc and Brian LeBlanc. They want to be Sparks. That ex- yeah. That explains the mustache. <laughs> and there's sort of a Kenny Loggins-ishness to this, you think, maybe? Like or, 80s like, Kenny Loggins, like yeah. Danger Zone? Or, or Hall & Oates or something. I mean, it's... it's uh, I think or, it insults Hall & Oates a little bit. Am I being thrown off just by the fact that there's two dudes with feathered hair on the cover? True. Yeah, yeah. It's not good. Yeah. Well, gosh, maybe we should move on. I, um, they have a they have a movie, um, and I watched the uh, not a movie, uh, a music a video. Pro, this is a promo copy too, by the way. I <laughs> okay. just noticed. Well, I think <laughs> I, I had the sense that these ended up in a in a thrift store bin, and maybe a DJ, you know, who had kept this stuff on hand, or a completist, some sort of '80s corporate rock completist, had uh, had unburdened his his record uh, it had collection. Had to be a radio station person, right? Because, I mean, who else would have a promo copy of this? Of Fury. Of this from Fury record. What label is this on? New York Music Company. I, and there's actually a fan club. I wonder if you wrote a letter to the Fury fan club on West 57th Street. I'm going to Google what's at that address today. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen, where the, <laughs> the, the current location. Actually, if, if they'd taken their advance from this album and just bought that uh, that space, they'd probably make a, a lot money of money right now because that's... Uh, Prime real estate in Manhattan. No kidding. Well, let's move on to, to really. We landed on 1985, and I gave some contextual. You know, that was Golden Earring, Sticks, Mr. Roboto, Bowie, Let's Dance, uh, and we have three albums. Uh, and so, the heart of our thrift store find here is the 1980s, and we're sort of transitioning now into more metal type stuff. Yeah. And so, let's go with Surgeon first. Yeah. Now, when I say surgeon, it's not S-U-R-G-E-O-N. It's S-U-R-G-I-N apostrophe. Apostrophe. Surgeon. surgeon. And, and if you thought that the Fury album cover was bad, this looks this album cover looks like it was made in a shopping mall photo booth. Kinko's. Yeah, someone. 
I mean, it, it's handsome guys with headbands, but good grief. It's, it's that could have actually been the name of the band. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a jersey, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's 85. Yeah. And uh, it's three dudes, and, yeah, they're all shot, lit from the side. And it's individual photographs of the three dudes. So it's like that early Beatles record with the beautiful Ostrid Kirker photograph where they're shot from the side. It's like that, but it's not the Beatles. It's three mooks from New Jersey. And each of them are in a little yellow-framed kind of box of their own on a background that appears to be like a laser disco of some sort. And then their band name, Surgeon, is stylized poorly across the top here. It looks like a, something you would sell out of your, your merch table yeah. in the early 80s. That you had 500 of these pressed up or something. Yep. And then on the would, back, oh, you see the other guys, because it's actually a six-piece band. It's not a trio at all. It's like a double trio. Yeah. And how it takes six guys to make the noise that's on this record is beyond me. Because, I mean... <laughs> I would think any four-piece band could make this much noise. Well, but you also have, uh, I think I think vocals might have been important to this band, and having a number of people on stage to, to reproduce some of those things may have well, what come do in we, handy. What do we know about Surgeon? Because it looks like something that like the guy down the street who has a metal band in his garage made and then got made at Kinko's, but actually musically there's some... There's some interesting players in this. Well, yeah, there are. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things is Jack Ponte, who takes on guitar duties and vocals, uh, was a friend of John Bon Jovi's, and John Bon Jovi actually appears on the album uh, under the original spelling of his last name, which is B-O-N-G-I-O-V-I, like his cousin Tony, who was an engineer at the Power Station studio in New York. Uh, and they have a co-write on here, which is the song Shot Through the Heart which appeared on the first Bon Jovi album. And it's interesting because later you give Love a Bad Name. It's almost like an homage to your own early record. Right. The other weird thing to me is that the song Shot Through the Heart, it's, it's got that whole just the runaway thing. When I first heard it, I was like, wait a minute, who stole this song from whom? Yeah, yeah. You know? I was like, wait, and then I looked on the back, I was like, John Bon Jovi's involved in this? There's some sort of fuckery afoot here. What's what's <laughs> happening? I'm glad to know that that's the the backstory. Yeah, well, I mean, you can do that. You know, the, it's like uh, uh, Kevin Dubrow from Quiet Riot would insist that the first Blizzard of Oz album, which had his former bandmate in Quiet Riot, Randy Rhodes on guitar, that many of those songs were actually old Quiet Riot <laughs> songs. So you know, things get you know something lands in the demo drawer and then it gets pulled out at a, a later time because it's it's such a good idea. And hey, Runaway, that opening is. It's one of maybe two Bon Jovi singles I really like, honestly, and I really do like it a lot. It's a good yeah. one. Great song. Yeah. Just to contextualize metal, since this is our first sort of medley album, uh, this was, 85 was the year of Motley Crue's Theater of Pain, which means, uh, uh, what's their first one? What year was their, their satanic uh, one? Well, their pseudo-satanic one. So Shout at the Devil was 83, but okay. Too Fast for Love, the debut, actually comes 81? out about 81. Really early. Okay. Yeah. The thing is, by 85, what had happened was we all of a sudden had had hit records by Def Leppard with Pyromania, yep. which cracked it open. Again, what I was saying earlier, heavy bands playing straight bubblegum pop hooks and the yep. Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, the floodgates opened. And in MTV, all these bands crafted clever images and stuff. And so all of a sudden, you know, we had new wave music suddenly taking a back seat to guys like Twisted Sister and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And Surgeon coming out of uh, the New Jersey area, that whole tri-state area was like a, I mean, it was a breeding ground for this. You had Cinderella 
uh, Bon Jovi, as we've mentioned, and uh, a Twisted Sister also coming out of that scene, and a number of others who just never quite got out of the regional. Sure. It's interesting how over the course of the decade, I think there was a lot of imitation and uh, integration and remixing because some of these unfamiliar metal bands in our stack of albums made me think of Striper, Mm. not because I'm vested in metal in the 80s, but because I sort of wasn't. Like I had Striper because I went, you know, it was Christian rock and I felt obligated to buy it at the time. And so Striper was sort of replicating what was happening at the time and it felt like some of these other metal bands that we're, we're talking about and going to talk about were also sort of echoing in in these bands trying to figure out exactly what the metal aesthetic would be sure yeah. after, after this record practically every one of the, the hard rock records that we have left in this pile to me it's almost like someone said can we make this a little more white snake you know what i mean yeah. it's like there was a real certain vibe that they were trying to go for with the way the guitar tones were Yep. The way the song structures were, the way the singers sang, they were like they were trying to. It's like, oh, we've had a couple of big hits this way. We know how to do that. Let's yeah. do more of that. Yeah, and this is uh, this is you know the 1980s is also the era of the A and R man who's coming in from the label, sitting in on the sessions and saying, you know, exactly like you were I saying, don't Michael. A hit here. Yeah, you know, uh, can can we get something that sounds a little bit more like Motley Crue? Can we get this Def Leppard aesthetic with the huge gang vocals and um, you know, all it would take would be getting one of those songs on the radio. and boom, Exactly. You know? Can you think of an example of like a mid-'80s metal band that maybe didn't have any more chops than one of these bands but had one single that, that pried the door open? Oh, Cinderella, I would yeah. say. You yeah. mentioned yeah. them. Yeah, I, yeah I, Cinderella. I don't have any love for them, but the dude's a good guitar player, and he writes good pop songs. You know what I mean? Yep. And it's like... And a band that had spent a lot of time in the clubs, and to this day... Uh, maybe not a band that I always appreciated on record, but I have seen Cinderella live and a, I mean, a real like punch to the gut style bit live band. I totally believe that. Yeah. I totally believe that. But the Surgeon record actually is pretty solid. It's almost <laughs> like a mid 80s Uriah Heap record in a way, and in, in some parts of it a little bit. Just the way, I don't know. It was like if, if that kind of music had made a natural progression through the new wave era to this, it might have had more of a kind of this kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But yeah, something that you might have, you know, a dime a dozen. There were bands along the uh, Michigan-Wisconsin border when I was growing up that were making their own albums and selling them out of, you know, when they played the local ski lodge. And that's kind of what Mm. what Surgeon reminds me of. Right. But there are a few tunes on it worth listening to, you know what I mean? I don't know that I would throw this on the record player often, but there's a tune or two on there I might be into. Yeah. Can we we also talk about the, the... 84, 85 is also an interesting time in the evolution of metal because there is not one dominant heavy metal. Um, it's true. You have the you know the British movement with the very commercial Judas Priest, the very uncommercial Iron Maiden, and then the hit machine that's Def Leppard. Sure. You have the New York tri-state area style that's coming up with Bon Jovi and and so forth. And you've got Los Angeles glam, but then you've also got bands that started in Los Angeles like Metallica right. that made their way up to San Francisco for the Bay Area thrash scene, which is where we get this this launching of extreme metal. And Slayer also coming out of Los Angeles. So you have these d- 
different streams at this time. These guys represent the the. This is East Coast. Yeah, extreme <laughs> commerciality of it. One in one year was it eighty five or eighty six that Rain and Blood and Master 86. of Puppets came out. Okay, so yep. we're slightly before that time when, yep. you know, that wasn't getting airplay in the Wichita, Kansas radio no. stations of the world. But if you remember eighties metal, that was a huge year for the thrash. You know. Yeah. contingent of metal. I yeah. was still scared of like that kind of music at that age. I was a, a biblical child. Yes, yeah. I, was, I, I, was I absolutely of was. Music. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I remember kids at school, like the guys who had a big Slayer patch on their jackets, sure. saying, that's where I learned the word um, poser. Yeah. In the context of these guys talking about Bon Jovi, you know, as as a persona that had sold out true metal. Yeah. Um, and I had no, I, I was still learning. I didn't know what they were talking about, but there was that the tension between the different heavy metals in the mid '80s. Yeah, yeah, and and you know Slayer uh, was was designed to scare the hell out of you. I mean, there's <laughs> <laughs> there's there's no other way around it. Sure. And it it really you know created that dividing line. Well, there's an album that has a scene from hell on the cover with a pentagram, and Rain and Blood specifically, I think, is you know 26 minutes total. So it was repeated on both sides of the cassette. <laughs> <laughs> and had a song about Auschwitz, Joseph Mengele on it. Um, that was not stuff that you were going to sit down and, and say, hey, Mom, Dad, uh, check this out. <laughs> Every generation needs that, though. There was, yeah. like, Alice Cooper did it, you yep. know, and then guys like that were doing it. Well, hip-hop took up the mantle later, too, yeah. I think. Marilyn Manson yeah. a little bit later. Yeah, there's yeah. always got to be someone to piss off the parents. Yeah, hip-hop pisses off the parents, well, too. Like because... the Ghetto Boys, which I know quite a bit oh, about. Sure. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. We're really taking the torch, the Slayer torch, and just, like, let's be as as uh, horror movie-ish as possible. Um, interestingly, you probably wouldn't find the equivalent of Slayer or Metallica in a thrift store bin on a major label album. Nope. Um, no. Nope. Uh, and so I think we're sort of looking in the middle, like the, the, the golden mean of heavy metal. Uh, as I don't think anybody was knocking off that kind of music. The, yeah. the people were knocking off the stuff that had already been commercially successful. Like, we know we can have a hit record if you have a record that sounds like this. Yeah. That Slayer record was a hit with the kids who were into it, but, it, you know, it wasn't on the radio it wasn't anything a record label executive would understand who wasn't like the kind of record label executive that published slayer records yeah well let's bring rough cut in because yeah. it's also an 85 album also heavy metal and compared to when i looked at the youtube stats um surgeon had like five thousand listeners whereas rough cut there's one of their tracks that has four hundred thousand listens and sure. so it's I probably remember. as close to mainstream releases we have in this stack
Yeah, they do. Uh, they do. Peace of my heart. Um, that's right. Aretha yeah, like, Franklin's big sister's hit that Janis Joplin covered. I mean, right. yeah, yeah. As as performed by a Orange County heavy metal band. And, and what label is this on? That came out on Warner Brothers. This is on Warner Brothers Records, who apparently had no art department. Yeah. Because <laughs> okay, yeah, describe this for us. <laughs> the cover of this album has a spider web, in the center of which is rendered a big red heart like a human heart but it's shaped like a candy heart and it has veins on it and everything and then it has a green handled dagger plunged through like cutting through it roughly like it's a rough cut you see and then there's blood dripping off the back of it and then crawling on off of the spider web onto the heart is some sort of robotic spider that reminds me of Bubo the owl from Clash of the Titans <laughs> that has a spider and then across the top and Kind of like some sort of like almost tech style video game font. Thank you very yeah. much. So rough cut with two T's. Yep, and that two T's uh, has an origin because uh, members of this band came out of Mickey Rat, oh. which morphed into Rat. That's, and, and that's funny because this band sounds a lot like Rat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris Hagar, one of the uh, guitar players, uh, was in the original Mickey Rat with Stephen Pierce. He was a good. Uh, teenage years friends and the guys here basically came out of San Diego in the late 70s moved up to LA and then those different versions of Rat and Rough Cut sort of rubbed elbows Jakey Lee who would go on of course to play with Ozzy was a early Rough Cut member also in Rat Um, and this band was managed by Wendy Dio that's right. Ronnie James Dio had some uh, early workings uh, behind the scenes. Didn't he write or co-write one of these tunes? Yeah. Didn't Wendy write some of these tunes? I think she did. And uh, uh, basically the story goes that the band was waiting around for Ted Templeman of Van Halen fame to work on this album because he did a lot of Warner Brothers stuff. And his availability, this would have been around the time that Van Halen was on top of the charts with 1984, but also breaking off from David Lee Roth. Right. And uh, he just wasn't available. So they got Tom Allum, who had worked with uh, Judas Priest and a number of others. Um, so there's a ton of history. And Paul Shortino, lead vocalist, had played Duke fame in the film This Is Spinal Tap. So, so this <laughs> is our, you go. our spectral connection to Spinal Tap. It's funny because <laughs> I'm looking at the picture of the guy on the back of the cover, and I'm like, this guy looks familiar to me. Yep. I did not realize. And so explain Duke fame and his role in Spinal Tap because it's, it's a memorable scene. It's a humiliation scene, yeah, more or less. So yeah, this is the moment where um, uh, uh, Nigel and uh, and David Saint Hubbins are Nigel Tufnell and David Saint Hubbins are sitting in a hotel room, and they're talking about how the opening act, right? Uh, he, he comes in and he's followed by a couple beautiful women. He's you know he looks ever much the uh, the rock star, and he walks away, and they say. We had to apologize for his set with our set because it's one of those cases where the opener has blown the headliner off the stage. So, yep. <laughs> <laughs> What's got? He's got this much talent. <laughs> you guys, had, they'd lived past their prime by then. Yeah. But he looks. He's shirtless, and it appears he's been waxed or oiled on the back. Of I the noticed that. It looks like they had like a, a like a spray bottle of baby oil mm-hmm. or something to yeah. sort of Mrs. make Shortino shine. What year is this? Eighty five or six? Yeah, five. Eighty five. Yeah. You can see his hair is it's like this perfect black helmet of curly locks, kind of early slash. Yeah. A little bit, and then he's got like a body that's a little beefy. He's been working out, but not too much, and it's really greasy. 
and he's shirtless, and he's wearing like a bandoleros of just leather with studs on them. And then he has a belt made out of like bullets and then blue leopard skin stretch pants and a big giant chunky bracelet on one wrist and two bandanas tied around the other wrist. Which is a little late for the bandana around the wrist because that had kind of gone out by by late 84. And this Johnny Thunders looking dude right here, he doesn't look well. I think if you look at the Peace of My Heart video, um, again, you like this this band picture on the back is sort of the platonic ideal of what a heavy metal band would look like <laughs> right? in the mid '80s. Who's your you stylist? At, if you look at the at the video of of Peace of My Heart, you have spinning drumsticks. Like more than like every time the camera goes to the drummer, he spins his drumsticks. I think you have wind machines, fog machines. You have close up of uh, the lead singer's eyes, and and so even though rough cut maybe isn't the band we remember 1985 by. This is sort of a time machine back to 1985. And actually, Jed, did you say that this was your favorite album for like a week in 1985? Yeah, yeah. This was, uh, there was a syndicated uh, uh, metal, heavy metal program called Metal Shop that used to come on at midnight on Fridays out of uh, Appleton, Wisconsin on, a, on WAPL. That's who carried it in my uh, area. And I heard Rough Cut, and it was Peace of My Heart, which was the, the single, and a song called Never Gonna Die. And I thought Never Gonna Die was one of the most original sounding things. Because I, I, it isn't quite metal. Um, and it didn't sound like the... I thought, man, this is really something different. So uh, I went to my local music land and said I wanted to order it because they weren't wow. carrying it. And it took, it took months uh, for it to come, actually. And then I got it, and I was, like, so blown away. Now, what I didn't realize, I knew that Peace of My Heart was a cover, but I didn't realize that Never Gonna Die was also a cover from the Australian band, the Choir Boys, oh. who teetered later in the decade with some mainstream success. kind of remember US. them a little bit. Yeah. But for the most part, this is, uh, it's interesting, because I recently heard an interview with Chris Hager talking about how he wasn't part of Rat. You know, like, he was he was there early on, and then kind of diverged, but he said, you know, bands are about chemistry, and I think Rough Cut was one of those bands, if you listen to the original material, the chemistry just isn't quite there. Right. There's something, there's just something missing from it. They're all capable of doing what they do in the band, but it doesn't gel in a way that yeah. really rocks or swings or anything. And I, Paul Shortino, a, a capable vocalist, he went yeah. on to join uh, Quiet Riots for a period of time. He's got Kevin Dubrow's original hair. Yes. <laughs> Front to back, too, I think it didn't quite... Like, the first riffs, you open the album and, and you yeah. think, this is going to be the best album ever. And yeah. by the by the time you're done with side two, it's like, yeah, they were okay. Yeah. I didn't like the cover of Piece of My Heart, actually. I'm just like... That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was in fifth grade. Yeah, and I was in 85. I was like, you know... Well, so. they, they are if there was a... A booby prize winner here. They they are probably the most listened to band of the one in our stack today. Yeah. God bless them. I actually Googled them, and Google is not a scientific way to find comparisons, but when I Googled bands like Rough Cut, uh, I got King Cobra, Dawkin, Lynch Mob, Y&T, sure. and the Dokken. Bullet Boys. Oh, yeah, Y&T. Yeah. Y&T, yeah. For real. Yeah. Yeah, this is almost like Y&T's, like, pinch hitters or something. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah. see that. They're stunt yeah. doubles. Yeah. And Y&T. My capable goodness. band. Yeah, very capable band. A band that spent years in the San Francisco Bay Area before having any sort of flirtation with mainstream they had, success. They charted once, right? Yeah, yeah. And then poof. 
Well, let's let's transition into 1986. Should we start with oh with? Uh, oh, well, actually, let's start with Stone Fury. Describe the cover of this album. Well, unlike Fury, Rutger Hauer. Rutger Hauer. That's true. It, he does, it, with a, it, with uh, the guy on the left is like Rutger Hauer's stunt double, but he's wearing Lamal's hair from Kaja Gugu. Well, it's like he's he's Rutger Hauer's stunt double, and he scalped Rutger Hauer's head and put Rutger Hauer's hair on top of his hair. On top of his own hair. There's so much hair on this guy's head. Yeah, you know those things that you can wear, like women wearing their hair to make it give them like a boof on top? This guy's got that, except for it's spiky. It's like spiked straight up, but it's long in the back. It's it's remarkable. It's bad. And he's not a bad looking dude. Like if you like take the hair off there, it's like that's a handsome guy, right? And then the dude on the right, again, it's like the top of his hair is way too far above the top of his actual skull. But he's brunette. And then it says, Stone Fury, let them talk. And the font has lightning bolts. Basically, every letter here has little lightning boltish aspects. Now, again, to contextualize, we've moved on to 1986. Uh, Paul Simon's Graceland was that year. Winwood Higher Love. Actually, I found that as I was studying hits from various years, the late 80s was a lot thinner than the early 80s. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, Eddie Murphy had a big hit on the Billboard charts. Um, My Girl Likes to Party All the Time. Lionel Richie, Peter Gabriel, Sledgehammer, 5150 by Van Halen. So Van Halen was post-David Lee Roth era. ZZ Top, but like ZZ Top sleeping bag. So like um, post-peak ZZ Top. It was a weird year for music. Uh, And so like how would we characterize Stone Fury? I don't know what they were going for there. I mean, it's it's kind of a metal look, but it's also kind of a, a little bit of a new wave look still. Are, are, are these guys American? They're not. Uh, Lenny Wolf, the vocalist who would go on to sing with Kingdom Come, right. the, the band that was accused of sounding like Led Zeppelin. Because they did. And then he said, I've, I've never, never listened, listened to Led Zeppelin. Zeppelin. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, come and I was on. like, you fucking liar. <laughs> And Get it on, that song? Yeah, song yeah. It's exactly no, like Zeppelin. Kingdom Come, especially after listening to Stone Fury, sounds like a Zeppelin cover band. Yeah, yeah um, for th- real. Th- this doesn't sound that Led Ze- it doesn't no, s- no. sound that much Led Zeppelin-ish. But it wasn't Kingdom hip Come, in that time period, too. Yeah. yeah. This is a weird thing because Bruce Gowdy, the guitar player, um, has a career in progressive rock, latter-day progressive rock, especially with a band called World Trade, which also features Billy Sherwood, who's now the bassist in Yes!, and I think Bruce uh, Gowdy is a capable progressive rock musician, but he's trying to do something that's more pop or new wave here, and it just doesn't gel. It, it, it doesn't congeal with Lenny Wolf's vocal style, and uh, it tries too hard. If you listen to the production, this is a record where I, I pointed out something earlier where the mix is terrible. 
The production on this for the era is gorgeous in many cases. And is this on a major too? Yeah, that's on, on MCA, MCA yeah. which at that time was known as Music Cemetery of America. Oh. <laughs> 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 Who else was on MCA then? Uh, basically nobody. Wow. I mean, that was I think this was MCA's bid to get cuz this was the second of two Stone Fury albums and I thought that the first one, I mean the first one is one of those rare albums that I didn't listen past the first track and I thought that couldn't be beat, but this comes pretty close. And yeah, I have to wonder about like the marketing on this, just because the way these guys are dressed. Like on the front, it's a close up of the two dudes, and they have uh, what appears to be like jackets on. But on the back cover, I mean, he's he looks like Lamal from yeah. Kaja Gugu in '83. Yeah, here in this photo with this like this muscle shirt and, and pale pastels, these gray shoes, and then he's lying on the ground on his side like. He's on a bearskin rug, but again in a muscle shirt. And they're most, going. They're going to the mall after this, for real. I don't. <laughs> they're going to get friendship. I mean, who is this marketed to? <laughs> who is this marketed Probably to? Probably to like thirteen-year-old boys who dress like that. I guess you know? it's it's sort of like uh, uh, Michael McKeon saying that uh, you know uh, uh, David St. Hubbins in Spinal Tap is uh, is like a fourteen-year-old boy's idea of what sexy is, <laughs> right? <laughs> For real, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of this. This back photo is like clueless art direction to me. Yeah, you know what I mean. I don't know who this is for. And it has like the Miami Vice soundtrack, Miami Vice soundtrack font. font. <laughs> yeah, it's all like pink and yellow and like pastel. Like this is it, this is past this. It's like that's eighty three. And yeah. this design, I mean, if somebody took this to John Hughes as a poster, he'd say no. Yeah. You know, like, no. like somehow the the aesthetic that worked in '83 as a John Hughesy aesthetic is not working here. It's like, get out of my office. <laughs> and an interesting thing about the way things look during decades is that oftentimes the way we think they look, at the, in, in retrospect, weren't how they looked. So yeah. Nirvana broke in 1991. You think, oh, people were wearing flannel. No, they were wearing mock turtlenecks and MC Hammer pants, right? Yeah. Yeah. They were wearing flannels the next year after the record sold. Well, well yeah, well, probably mid-90s was when people finally really started to wear flannel. And and so in, in a way, the 80s lines up, like the 60s, Visual aesthetic didn't kick in until, what, 72 or 3, you know, the long-haired on normal people. Well, that's when it got commodified. Though. Commodified. You know yeah. what I mean? Commodify your descent or, or yeah. yeah. Well, by then, it's like, oh, everybody's wearing these style of jeans now. I need to wear that style of jeans. Oh, now I can do that at Bloomingdale's or whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think somebody could probably go through these albums and, and do a Ph.D. on uh, fashion copying and mimicking throughout the course of the 80s because we, this is like the, the eighth time we've mentioned uh, um, strange anachronisms in, in cover art fashion. And, of course, this is pre-Internet, so maybe they just hired the, the third best um, visual coordinator and designer on this album. And I mean, it's in, like Surgeon, the, art, the cover art on the Surgeon album is so bad. Yeah. You know, it's last like place by a home. mile. Yeah. yeah. And it just makes you wonder, you know, in an era when, when albums were big and you went to the store and you picked them up and looked at them, like whose decision was it to save $25 and, and do the Kinko's album cover? I have to wonder if they didn't like literally do a version of that record that they were selling at gigs or something. Yeah. And then the label said, oh, we'll, just, you know, we'll press and distribute that. And they will already have the cover art. Well, yeah. That'll save us that. Yeah, I have yeah. to wonder. You know, that that was also not an uncommon thing at that time for for regional bands to get picked up by a major and have something re released. That happened with the 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 first Rat EP 
uh, Motley Crue's first album. Too. I said that first love. Motley Crue record. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it, that's. And then if you find the original regional releases of those, they're like super valuable now because yeah. you know, or those Twisted Sister was selling records out of their trunk for years. Yeah. You know. That's probably the other shadow history is all those demo tapes and oh, and the, the regional releases and the you know the the, the recording studios in the Wisconsins and, and people Georgia's forget of the world. That Ronnie Dio in the late fifties early sixties was a regional star as a doo-wop singer and had he was signed to like Atlantic or one of those like a, a little small local arm of a big label and was a regional star with his doo-wop group that morphed into his band Elf later. Yeah. And it's like if you can go look at those things up online, there's a website that has all his doo-wop stuff for free in MP3 form, and it's all super great. And then it's just like, oh, he disappears for 10 years and comes back and he's in Rainbow, you know, and then in Black Sabbath, and he becomes like this god of metal music. But he started off singing Dion stuff. Well, like Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails was sort of a poppy, um, you know, party wedding singer type thing. <laughs> don't don't quote me on that, but he had a very, um, you know, if you if you – analyze these groups on authenticity air quotes uh then trent reznor's journey into the angst god of of industrial music in the 90s w- took a very strange route yeah real quick what's the diagnosis on stone fury here mm. yeah really just forgettable musically yeah, really yeah. yeah again hand it to uh, uh, bruce gaddy's uh guitar orchestrations are are beautiful but when when that's what you have to recommend on an album. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's like one song caught me by surprise, Stay, the very last track, but it's because it sort of sounded like they were trying to copy Boy Era U2. Mm. Like there was some sort of weird vibe on their very last song that after I was lulled through the kind of sameness of the other songs that suddenly there was this, um, it sounded like the edge was playing the guitar all of a sudden. Yeah. So. In my notes, I noted first thing that it sounded like DX7 Hell. <laughs> And then I said, the singer sounds like he's swallowing his tongue. And then I said, like so much generic garbage of the era, it's one of those bands like Glass Tiger or Steel Breeze or Honeymoon Suite that could have accidentally had one hit record but didn't. I like Glass Tiger. Don't forget me when and, I'm gone. And, uh, and I Honeymoon like Suite? I, like I know honeymoon you do. <laughs> <laughs> Growing they, up that close to Canada, I had to. Well, <laughs> I'm not mad at them. Remember Steel Breeze? No. You, you don't want me anymore. It had oh, yeah, yeah, pan yeah. drums yeah, on it. Yeah. Steel Breeze, man. Actually, the, uh, Stone Fury had some of their tra- uh, tracks had 50,000 views on YouTube, which kind of surprised me. Whereas Le Mans, our next 1986 release, only had 4,000. Again, man, I don't know the hairstylist on this on this uh, album cover. 
I don't know, maybe they should have hired more than one hairstylist because it's like five guys with the exact same hair that my sister had in 1986. Yeah. Michael, how how would you characterize this? There's five dudes all like on the album cover and a dude in the middle I assume is probably the singer but he's not the best looking. In fact, four out of the five members of this band are what you might call fugly. And then this guy (laughs) down in the corner is a very good looking dude. But all of their hair is completely well. The guy on the bottom late left, late eighties boofed. This could, guy, he could be like a nose tackle uh, on his high school football team. That's like the deal, and he's got rouge on. You right. know what I mean? And it's like and I don't care. I mean, it was the the style at the time. But I mean, it's like really, this could be the sons of the New York Dolls, almost just with their their makeup and hair thing going on here. I, I think. One fun thing uh, when you're forming a band as a young person is thinking of the band name. And <laughs> Le Mans just has to be the worst band name ever. And yeah. maybe maybe I'm being influenced by the Google era when if you Google Le Mans, you're, you're not going to find the band. But like Le Mans, really? Like this this music, it, it seemed like a strange uh, name. What do you guys think of this whole I, Le Mans aesthetic I and mean, its music? is that supposed to be fancy like the 24 Hours of Le Mans? race like it's supposed to be like european and sexy and fast and sporty and well cosmopolitan yeah yeah this uh this band so so this band comes out of uh san francisco bay area and a huge figure in their uh coming up is mike varney who started shrapnel records mm-hmm. as a outlet for speed guitarists so he discovers Ingve malmsteen <sighs> He discovers all those hot shred guys in the 80s and had a, a local heroes column in Guitar Player magazine. So anybody who was fast and furious uh, was going to wind up under Mike Varney's influence at some point. And Derek Frigo, the guitarist of Le Mans, was one of those guys. Le Mans signed with Shrapnel and was a rare band on that, on that label. Most of the time it was a solo artist. The first Le Mans oh. album, which comes out in 83, is much heavier, much more driving than this was. And this band apparently had a, a strong reputation in the San Francisco Bay Area for being a knockout live band. Uh, for me, and this comes out on CBS, which is a, a huge leap up from uh, from Shrapnel. I think yeah. some of it must have been the appeal of uh, Derek Frigo's uh, writing because he went on to join Enough's Enough which had some major success uh, just a few years after this, but um, uh, musically, there, there's not. It's it's a band that's in transition, and uh, is I think trying too hard for that radio hit. And I'm sure CBS would have wanted a hit out of. Wasn't Ozzy on CBS? Ozzy was on CBS because this sounds like uh, shot in the dark era. Yep. Ozzy, big time. Yeah, like oh, a little white liony. Yep. You know what I mean? So wasn't Frigo like nineteen years old? Yeah. When this album came out, he was really young. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and that that fits in the Mike Varney mold was to get him. I mean, he got Paul Gilbert, who wound up in uh, Mr. Big, like sure. when he was fifteen years old wow, or something like so. that. So he liked them. Like, this is a kid who can play amazing guitar. Look at him. I think the singer from this band now plays in an Aussie tribute band. Yeah. So, so that's the the linebacker looking dude. I is mean, it? Yeah, is it is. It? In fact, in fact, uh, just as I suspected, the, the one that's so pretty he could be a girl is the drummer. So he's like wasted back there. <laughs> <laughs> he's wasted back there. Yeah, be, especially before the jumbotrons. Right. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I hope he like got his kit sideways. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a strange, this is just a sort of a lost group of people. I mean, you know, we have enough's enough, but didn't, he, I think he OD'd in yeah. 2004. Oh, yeah. Frigo did. Yeah. Um, he's, this, he's the son of a songwriter and an actress uh, and sort of, sort of came from an entertainment family. But then just the idea that, that the lead singer would not only be singing in an Aussie tribute band, but dressing up as Aussie to sing in an Aussie oh, tribute God. band. And so it's just a strange um, connection of stories. A, I mean, it's almost like a Netflix series waiting to happen it's here. It's got to be a kind of hell, you know, for someone to, you know, I think of Charles Bradley all those years dressing up as James Brown and doing his James Brown show when he's Charles Bradley. Yeah. And he never got the chance to be Charles Bradley in front of an audience until he was an old man. And then that only lasted a few years. And God bless him. It did last a few years, and I'm glad he got that. But, you know, uh, this poor guy was like, man, it's like we almost, we could have been there. You know, this guy could have been a rock star. Himself. And yeah. Himself, and instead he's putting on one of his label mates' wigs and going out on stage for the rest of his life. Oh, God. That, that brings up an interesting philosophical question we can come back to when we're all done with the albums, which is what what quality makes you actually succeed? Because there's a lot of really, really talented singers, for example, who they don't have a certain something, maybe they're not good songwriters, so they end up in tribute band type situations or like filling in, you know, there's the famous story of the Filipino guy who ended up singing for Journey and, and actually in certain ways yeah. sings better than Steve Perry. There's a lot to be said for competency right? when it comes to this kind of bands because, you know, a band like Journey, you mm-hmm. know, they're at the top level of success. Of, I mean, people criticize them for being corporate rock or whatever, but they're successful for a lot of reasons. And, you know, if they want to continue touring, they're going to have to get somebody that can sing like Steve Perry. And in the 70s and 80s, Steve Perry could sing like a motherfucker, for real. And so, of course, you're going to have to try to get that guy that can do that. But when you're coming up, you have to do something, I think, that's not just competent, but has your own hook to it, that has your own character to it. It's like Bob Dylan doesn't have a beautiful singing voice, but he's Bob Dylan, you know what I mean? He could, he does what he does in a way that arrests your attention, even if it's not something you're into. And that's you could say that about Men at Work. You could say that about A Flock of Seagulls. You know, you can rip that off later, but to come up with it, that's what's special about it. And sometimes you're just missing your, this guy was probably a perfectly fine singer, but he just didn't have whatever it took to to become something recognizable on his own. And maybe he's a super happy Aussie. I get the sense maybe he is yeah. a super happy Could Aussie be. tribute singer. Yeah. Um, another thing we can talk about, too, is the fate. I mean, there's bands that did have hits in the 80s, and then I saw them in the Iowa State, playing the Iowa State Fair second stage in 1993, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so now that we can... When, we're, when we get these last two albums and just talk about the nature of success and what, what it means versus are these, you know, to speculate about what happened to these people. Let's move on to 1987. We have a band called Envy. We'll get specific about it in a second.
this was the year of that U2's Joshua Tree won the Grammys. But really, again, late 80s musically was a, kind of a dry time. Like, I looked at the Billboard charts and just nothing jumped out. Amy Grant was charting with Peter Cetera, The Bangles, Heart, White Snake, um, Michael Jackson's Bad Era, The Beastie Boys came out in 87. But there were some interesting albums that came out in 87, but depth-wise, it wasn't a great year for music. And so what do we know about Envy, which came out on Atlantic? So this uh, comes out uh, on uh, the the label that was home to D. Snyder and his band Twisted Sister, and he produces this and writes a, a fair share of material on the album um, at a time when uh, when Twisted Sister's star was kind of falling. They had one more album in them, Love is for Suckers, which would come out in 1987, and then the band would be done for a period of time. Um, and we have uh, the sisters Ronnie and Gina Style in this band, and um, uh, Gina went on to play with Vixen, and the oh. sisters had been playing since their early teens together in a variety of bands. My assumption is that D. Snyder was probably aware of them from the New York circuit, and that's how he got hooked up with the band. Uh, and I'm reminded on this that how well... D. Snyder writes, yeah, which he doesn't get a lot of credit for. He knows how to do it, but he he has an impeccable uh, writing style and can really write pop because he wasn't just in you know he was influenced by Alice Cooper, uh, who of course has great pop songs. Sure, and the band Sparks, who have an underground reputation but know how to orchestrate a song. So you see a, a different side of D. Snyder coming out, I think, on I've this album. I've been listening to Stay Hungry a little bit lately. Yeah. And there's like there's tunes on it you forget about and it's 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 a bubblegum record practically, but super heavy. Yeah. Apparently these sisters were in a band called Poison Dollies that opened for Aerosmith, like when they yeah. were nineteen years old. Wow. Yeah. And so I think that they were just a known entity. Um you can only see their eyes on the album cover, but I, I presume that they were good looking young women and, and decent. Oh, there you so. have them on the back. Yeah. Oh, that what, picture me, on the back I is know, just right? are they getting on a tour bus there? Are they breaking into a building? Well the sisters look fine, but their band members just Why look is this terrible. Posing like this? It's right. almost like the band on the run yeah. album cover done <laughs> yeah. poorly. Yeah. You know, the immediate vibe you get off this is heart, of course, because this is like late period heart. Never yeah. uh, these dreams of like what uh, all I want to do is make love to you, which I've not uh, alone. Yeah. Big hits. Yeah. And as and I love heart and I respect them. I saw them live two years ago and they were killer. And in fact, they've recast most of their dated 80s stuff as like acoustic numbers and stuff now and made because they're good songs but they suffered in my memory by yeah. the production of the time but this band is like so clearly trying to position themselves in that vibe he's got the sister one who plays guitar and one who sings and they got these pop tunes and you know there's synths and stuff all over them it really feels like oh we can ride that coattail right now i think there's a there's another thing that um we didn't talk about which is in metal at that time, there was a lot of pressure, it seems like, to have a female star in the world of heavy metal. There's Doro Pesch, who comes out of the German band Warrior. Right. Um, and she's phenomenal. She's Lita like, Ford. Yeah, she's like a female Rob Halford or Bruce Dickinson. Um, you know, if you, if you want to create the analogy, Lita Ford, who flirts with, has some mainstream success while she's managed by Sharon Osbourne. A, a singer named Fiona, who was produced by Bo Hill, who did the early Rat Records. And in fact, they were married for a time. I remember Fiona vaguely. And none of them had that thing that broke them through. And Envy, to me, is really one of the one of the best 
uh, that I've heard in that style. I really have a soft spot for this record. I have to be honest. Yeah, there wasn't anything on this that I wanted to go to the next track. I yeah. was like, oh, this this yeah. easily could have they could have had hits off of this. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not sure why they didn't really. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it was you know poor promotion. Maybe they didn't make a cool video. Yeah, you know. I, do you think maybe it was a little bit behind the curve musically, just because some tracks sounded like it was like a pop song you would hear in the background of a scene from the Terminator yeah. in yeah. the nightclub. You know, yeah. there was the, the sort of, the, by 1987, maybe that synthy pop was a little bit less fresh. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, around that time, what I always think of as the last new wave single was The Promise by When in Rome, yeah. which if you think back on it, that seems like an 83 song, but it was like 87 or eight. And yeah. it always blows my mind. It's like, how was that a hit that late? Yeah. You know what I mean? But it, that was like the last gasp of that. And this record kind of, I could see you thinking that. I think the I think the video thing that you're mentioning is also really important because we've traveled from a time when MTV didn't exist to a time where by 87, MTV is... They're developing programming rather than showing videos like a radio all day. Yeah. Which to me is the death of MTV as I loved it. Yeah. Was that, was that 80s radio. or was that more 90s? In the late 80s is when they started, develop, they started developing blocks of programming like... Uh, ghettoizing the music it's like oh let's put all the hip-hop in one spot let's put all the metal in one spot let's put all the weird yeah. stuff in one spot in the early days you turned it on and there would be i remember seeing like all twisted by crowd and killing jokes 80s right next to michael jackson right next to uh, you know run dmc right next to cindy yep. lopper and right next to you know xdc and stuff like that and then all of a sudden they ghettoized everybody's taste so instead of cross-pollinating everybody with, oh, I really like this song by this rap group, or oh, I really like that metal song, which was the service MTV did, I think, for pop music in its day, all of a sudden, and then you got game shows, and then by the 90s, it's turning into a lifestyle channel. Yeah. And instead of music, now suddenly it's, you're, you know, watching a bunch of spoiled brats in a combo, condo fighting. By 87, in the hard rock world, you also have the... Uh, underground becoming part of the mainstream. So Metallica has jumped ship from an independent label to a major label. Anthrax has jumped ship from an independent label Who's to Skirdu. a major label. Husker Du. Yeah. Husker Du in the, in the replacements in the, in the... What year are we talking about? Uh, by, 87, 88. Yeah, but between 84 and 87, those things had really... The underground was no longer the underground. You also have the arrival of Headbangers Ball. Exactly. Which shoved, all of a sudden, Slayer... And really everybody but Metallica, because Metallica hadn't made a video by that point, <laughs> into living rooms in places That's such true. as Wichita, Kansas. That's true. It, it, I, I think that there is a slow burn for the 90s starting at this point. Yep. Uh, one of the people I've talked to, his episode will probably air after this one, is James Greer, who was a spin writer in the early 90s, wrote some articles that until I went back and looked at his, de uh, at his byline, I didn't realize that really influenced my tastes. Um, he ended up. He was engaged to Kim Dill of the Pixies for a while. He moved to Ohio. He played in Guided by Voices for a while. He just oh, yeah. this, he's this walking embodiment of the 1990s music. And we were talking about that, about how we have this Nirvana moment. Actually, when he was he was in Seattle that weekend. Kurt Cobain died, you know. So he's like just sort of this. Wow. You could build a movie about the '90s around, you know, just the where he was standing on various days of the '90s. Uh, but it's almost like. If you look at the history of teen spirit and how that broke, it felt to me, maybe a different you guys, you guys are probably more vested in music than me. I came home from Christmas in Oregon. I was in Oregon for college. I came home for Christmas that fall 
with a copy of Nevermind, thinking I was I had discovered this thing that I was going to share with my Kansas friends. Right. And all of my Kansas friends also came home from Lawrence and Austin, <laughs> Texas, thinking the same thing. And so I think organically in our minds, we think of Nevermind as this just explosive um, album that was so unique that everybody got it, when in fact um, there was an intern who really pushed for the Teen Spirit single to be in the rotation at MTV. Yeah. And so I think we're talking about how the pure MTV was starting to die around 87. I think maybe that may have been the end of that that bookend. That yeah. MTV is what made Nirvana Nirvana, that somehow there was a decision to play Teen Spirit every day and people responded to that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that may have been... I, I don't know this scientifically, but um, you know, at a gut level, it feels like that was the last big moment of MTV playing individual songs and, and breaking music. something. Yeah, it could be. Also, a lot of the bands that we're we're talking about that had had, you know, were so critical in '86: Slayer, Metallica, Megadeth, uh, even uh, I think I think Killing is my uh, not Killing is my business. Yeah, I think Killing is my business is maybe '85, but it's definitely in that era. Which band? Uh, Megadeth. Okay. Those bands by '87, really, their best work was behind them. Um, Metallica's "And Justice for All" comes out in '88. There's no bass on I it. I remember it. The drums sound like it's typewriters. Ass. Yeah, and um, and then they become a different band by the early '90s. So I think you're right. There Who is are we a, talking about? Uh, Metallica. Metallica. Metallica yeah. yeah, I think you're right. There is that that slow burn. Even White Snake. White Snake has a huge album in 1987. Yeah, but. The best thing that Whitesnake had done was slide it slide in. Slide it in was 84 or something? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Agreed. And it becomes a completely different band. Well, I, I think that was when Whitesnake, like someone at their label was like, we have some ideas. Yeah. Let's put on the, let's tease your hair. Yeah. Get your girlfriend in the video. Yeah. You know. And Aerosmith too, you know, 87 yeah. is the year of permanent vacation. Right. And which they had come puts, back from yeah. the dead because of MTV yep. and Run DMC. Yep. Yep. Which yeah. I also had on my uh, list from one of these years that that was their their uh, walk this way. Oh, eighty five, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was oh. a big part of music that year. But yeah, just uh, I I had not known that like the Who's Credus of the world were going major label at that time, and I think that was all groundwork for what how music shifted with Nirvana later on. Yeah, let's do what let's do our last album in the stack. All right, which is Leather Wolf. Leather Wolf. This is the end of the 80s, and I'm looking. Gosh, music just kept getting worse and worse. Millie, it was the year of Millie Vanilli won a Grammy that year. Michael Bolton uh, was big at the, at, the, uh, at the Grammys. There was interesting bands like the Traveling Wilburys. Metallica finally dropped a, a music video. Um, Billboard charts had Poison, Paula Abdul, Warrant, Debbie Gibson, Phil Collins, Madonna, New Kids on the Block, Great White. 
there's there's some surprises. I didn't realize that The Cure and Love and Rockets were charting in 1989. Yeah. Uh, but Skid Row. Um, Earth, Sun, Moon was out by Love and Rockets then. And was that? 89 would have been Disintegration. Because right. 87 yeah. was Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, right. which is a unassailable which, Cure album. Which is a terrific Cure album. Actually, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of Disintegration as well. Yeah. Disintegration, I think, is the one that like most of my hardcore Cure fan friends like consider like their most epic work but yeah you know they've got great stuff throughout their whole career um and of course nothing in our stack is cure like i think no <laughs> not at all no <laughs> not at all <laughs> in a sense because well, leather wolf is an interesting book into our decade which mm-hmm. started back with suicide and the next because they're, yeah. they're an interesting story i mean you're tempted just by their name to say oh well this is somebody trying to be white snake but there's more to them what did you guys learn about Le- leather wolf this is a band that actually comes out of the Orange County scene that was spawning Slayer. Uh, these guys were playing the same clubs that Metallica was playing during its uh, L.A. days. And three guitars. Triple Axe Attack. Yeah, Triple Axe Attack. So there's something there, and it doesn't quite fit with the glam style that was coming out of it's L.A. It's tougher, kind of. I yeah. Mean, leather Wolf. I mean, even in their name, it's, yeah. it's less hairspray. I mean, there's still some hairspray, but... yeah. Not as much. Yeah, and but it's not extreme metal like Slayer or Metallica. So there's, I think this is a band that was, you know, and, and by 89 they already had a couple of other albums out. I think this is a band that was had an identity but couldn't sell it. And it's on Island Records, too, yeah. of all labels in the world for this kind of band to be on. Yeah, well, Island had, you know, success with White Lion and Anthrax uh, by this point. I didn't realize that White Lion So was there was, a, there was a, a metal contingent on that label. Um, so, yeah, the Leather Wolf's like a, another L.A. band from that era, Armored Saint, um, which was had hooks in their songs right they had a was, fan base yeah but was heavy but just never that never translated to a wider audience for them so Leatherwolf is the probably the heaviest of the yeah. ba- of the mm. bands in the stack and yeah. like at a riff level you can tell that they opened for Metallica in, in the early 80s uh, but you were talking Jed about how it didn't quite grab you that they was they were just trying to pack too much into their yeah it's it's like uh, it's like on one hand they want to be Iron Maiden and have these like fancy riff fests and complex songs but they don't have the stuff to carry it off they've got no songwriting hooks yeah. i mean no one yeah. was writing stuff for this band that would pull out i say you have three guitars i mean you could be doing all kinds of stuff in there with twin licks yeah triples i mean you, you know everybody loves that twin guitar sound that judas priest or iron maiden gets or whatever imagine you have three dudes all playing like up the neck at the same time. That would be super cool, but there's not that much of it on here. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And it's interesting you mention that because you and I saw Iron Maiden with a band opening for them mm-hmm. and that had no hooks, and it just accentuated the power of... Everybody thinks of Iron Maiden as being so heavy, but you and I walked out of there, and we could sing the choruses yeah. of virtually every song they played. Yeah, my six-year-old kid likes Iron Maiden. Yeah, You know, he got drawn in by the creepy album covers, but then it's like... Tunes, you know, they got tunes. They got you. You can catch yourself whistling it later, yeah. And you're not going to do that with anything on this record. No, I love you, Leather Wolf, but sorry. Yeah, talented <laughs> dudes, talented dudes. I mean, someone should have written some hits for these guys. They probably could have, you know. I mean, they're good looking. They're t- they're competent, and they're still around. As is um, Rough Cut. Yeah, those are both bands that are out and about. So I guess now we go into phase two, and I think the, I think 
before we sign off, we'll maybe each choose one album that we think was unfairly submerged in the um, in in the wash of the 1980s. But I do want to talk about just speculation. What happened to these bands? Um, why do we not know them? Why do we know? Why is the summer of '89 a, a, a White Snake summer instead of a, a Leather Wolf summer? Um, and, and that's probably not the best example because Leather Wolf is not exactly like White Snake. But um, why were these? Why why don't we know these bands? Why wasn't KKRD and T95 in Wichita playing this music? I don't. I think maybe probably what it comes down to: all these bands are on, all but one or two are on, like top level major labels and probably you know some record labels have been known to have a habit of hiring bands that they think are going to be marginal so that they can take a tax write off on mm-hmm. them and so you know and I don't know that that's the case in any of these particular situations but you know how shitty must that be for you as an artist when you worked your whole life putting in your trying to get a career together and doing all this stuff and you go through the whole you get signed all the excitement of that they're going to press your record and blah 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 and then at the end you find out it's like we're not going to promote you they're going to fill out the bare bones minimum of your contract about how many records get put out or whatever it's going to take a month to get that rough cut album to wisconsin when yeah. the kid decides he likes it and then drop you completely and take it as a loss on your taxes. So, I mean, that could have been the fate of any of these, but yeah. more than likely it was just a failure of, to promote them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, uh, I, I like what you said, Michael. I also think that, um, you know, there, there's that, how will it play in Cleveland sure. question? Uh, Sammy Hagar, for instance, probably one of the most recognizable faces and voices of 1980s rock. Yeah cannot get arrested on the East Coast. That has traditionally been a, a terrible market for him. So a band, you know, that's coming out of Memphis, like the the Breaks, right, might have had a huge regional following, but then there's just something about it. Once you get a once you get into Kentucky It doesn't translate. They don't want to know about it. Yeah. It could be very well. Any the other thing is I would think that in some cases it, it has to have been someone dropped the ball in getting the word out about these bands at their labels or their distributors because look how much absolute garbage was on the charts yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. You know, I listen back on, you know, I'm a great fan of pop music, top 40 music in general, bubblegum, all that kind of stuff. And I look back on stuff that I actually bought as a teenager in the 80s and I think, oh my God, did I really buy Break My Stride by Matthew Wilder on 45? And listen to it a bunch. I did. Yeah. And I listen back to it now, and it's just such utter crap. I disagree. Well. (laughs) (laughs) This is another era of music, too. Um, And you might know more about this than me, that I know that when SoundScan kicked in in the early 90s, it made people realize that all of the charts were being gamed anyway. All of the sales figures were being gamed. And and the, the 1980s was the last great era of major labels being able to cheat the numbers buy a truckload of records and leave them parked somewhere yeah. right and <laughs> yeah. and so the particip- basically it cheated independent music you know it favored uh mainstream acts over edgy ones um i mean because one of the first when SoundScan kicked in like nwa became a number one album all of a sudden overnight yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and and so guess what people are buying gangster rap records and they're buying you know, or hardcore con- you know uh, music yeah yeah, or, or or like country music that just is in yeah. a very quiet way. Suddenly, in the Nirvana year, Garth Brooks Garth and Billy Brooks. Ray Cyrus yeah. sold more than Nirvana. Yeah. Uh, and so then once you start counting differently, then there's a, a more direct logic to what's successful. So I feel there's an extent to which these albums may have been the victim of that gaming the industry era where what for, for whatever reason, 
label X is going to put all their resources in, in creating sort of artificial buzz about not suicide in the next, but right. about whoever they're, whoever else they're trying to push on the public. That's what I heard happened to that Captain Beyond record in the 70s is yeah. Capricorn signed them, but all their budget was going toward Almond Brothers releases, which was their bread and butter. And so yeah, really brilliant record languished. And, you know, now it's a also ran in history, even though it's really brilliant. So there's also sometimes I think, too, what gets overlooked is that there's culpability on the parts of bands, things that bands won't do sometimes like cut a video or agree that something should be a single or agree to work with an outside writer. Um, there's a, if you haven't read uh, Bob Mayer's wonderful biography of the replacements, Trouble Boys, that is a, one of the best. So I think it sets a new standard for rock biographies. But there's a moment where Paul Westerberg's called into a record, ex- record executive's office and says, hey, I've got a friend who's opening a mall in Minneapolis. We'd love it if you guys would be there as the hometown band to open it. Westerberg says, we don't play mall openings. And that becomes the end of the conversation, and that becomes the end of the push for the replacements at Warner Brothers, essentially. Yeah. Well, you know? well, that it goes back to that question of authenticity in music, you know, yeah. and what, how much does authenticity count, and how much is authenticity, authenticity air quotes, authentic? Um, what is being true to music? Um, I mean, it goes back to when rock and roll was stolen from poor people in the South in, in the 50s you know yeah um, that's the age-old argument even like lester bangs had to concede that sugar sugar kicked ass yeah and it was written <laughs> you know what i mean it's like chevy van was written in a corporate boardroom it was a top 10 hit you know what i mean so yeah you know yeah so is purity yeah i don't know it's probably a conversation that that is longer than we have time for now but um yeah i just wonder what fell short i mean like what are your favorites of these if you had to pick a few out if I was going to take one of these home, the Envy record is pretty good. Actually, I kind of like some of the Surgeon record, honestly. I might actually play it. Probably the Spies. Spies is the record I like the most out of those. Yeah. I would say the Envy record. Um, I think that that's a, a record that in the age of podcasting and, and reissues where people go back and, and dig up. I mean, Envy, is a that's a story I want to know more about, and I want to get to know this music on a deeper level. I think in every era you can find uh, you can find stuff like this that was the also ran and sometimes you can find that it's superior to the stuff that really was making it and sometimes you can see why it was kind of relegated to you know second class status and I don't know I think you'd find that through the 70s and you know I collect records and so I I buy whole boxes of old records sometimes and a lot of times you just find things in there you would never have any idea about and then you could start putting the story together by reading the names on the liner notes it'd be like just like jed was talking earlier oh so and so here worked on this record and blah 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 blah. so you get a backstory of the idea of who they are but a lot of times their stories really was lost to history it's like whatever happened to envy yeah. whatever happened to you know i mean we know the stone fury guy and some of these guys went on to other bands but um you know where are the envy brothers now yeah it's i, I think or the fury brothers sorry I think there might be something historically specific, too, because a lot of the sampling that you found in 80s hip-hop was DJs going through their old record collections, going to flea markets, and suddenly a a soul or a funk band that may not have charted in 1968 has a a famous sample, Mm -hmm. you know, is cut out. I don't know if there's an equivalent for this. I don't know how these might be salvaged. And in fact, we live in a new era where I'm not sure if these sorts of 
middling, never quite made it acts could exist anymore. It's just a different business model. I don't think they would exist on a major label. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that a lot of these bands would put out that, you know, it's like I am, as a musician myself, I have songs on Apple Music right now. You know what I mean? All it takes is you submitting your stuff. So. Well, that's it. You don't need the packaging, you know. That, you don't. That the if the if the sisters in Envy wanted to make it, they would go through different channels. They would use social media. You know, the breaks uh, out of Memphis would probably find some sort of regional strategy of touring and and you know, maybe writing a, a song for a car commercial. I don't know yeah. how the business works, but well, yeah. it it feels like these album covers are very specific to their to this era in history. It's it's um. I feel like what happened with the internet age that really changed music in a bigger way than anything else is that now, like I say, I'm just, I, I'm a guy, I record music in my house at home, and sometimes I put it online and you can listen to it or buy it. And my music is available on the exact same service with David Bowie and Madonna and Garth Brooks and all the biggest artists of the world. I'm like in an equal playing field with them as far as availability goes. What we don't have as much is arbiters of taste that help you find out, help you like sift through and get the chaff out and get to what you're looking for. And things like Spotify and Pandora, they kind of play toward that in a way that, you know, a a computer algorithm can, but it's different than someone like a John Peel or Rodney Bingenheimer or, you know, a DJ that has taste Mm -hmm. and has a specific set of taste and can help the public make their taste. You're also, you're, you're looking at an era too where, uh, the press was really thriving. I mean, Leatherwolf, you know, I religiously bought both Circus and Hip Parader magazines, which covered all the latest hard rock and heavy metal. And Cream would do, I mean, metal was so big that Cream was doing one-off issues just on certain elements of metal. So there was a, you could read about Leatherwolf and you could go, well, they got, you know, whatever kind of coverage in Hip Parader and no coverage in Circus. If they were really good. They'd be in both. They'd be in both. Um, and there were writers who you trusted, like you were saying. Absolutely. And a show like Metal Shop, which was specific to that kind of heavy metal, and that's so narrow. In fact, I think we should meet up in like 30 more years, and then we can see what are, what's the ephemera from 2017, you know? Man. <laughs> and what will it look like? A thumb drive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll have a stack of thumb drives that, you know, don't fit into our cranial computer Right interface. Well, I mean, you know, you you touch on something that we have talked about uh, uh, previous, but is so important. This is a, this was an era too where I could walk into um, you know the local music shop in the mall and buy albums based on the cover. Mm. I just look at something and I I know right. You know, I just know, and we don't have covers really. I mean, they exist, yeah. but we're we're thumbing through. I mean, my iTunes is just a. List of songs. Yeah, this is why I like. I, I the only music I buy new anymore is on vinyl, mm-hmm. and because nowadays everything new comes on vinyl once again, and it gives you the download, so I can have it on my phone, I can have it in my car or whatever. But then I also have the big artwork. Yeah, I have the physical thing. I'm old. I like that. You know what I mean? I like the physical interaction of it. I like the way it sounds in my living room. It forces you into a space of listening. It forces you, in it where it doesn't force you, but it like you know eases you, coerces you into a re- different relationship with the way you listen to music. And part of that is exactly that. There's a big picture on the front of it. Yep. I remember 1984, probably, or 83, so I was 14 years old. I walked into a pawn shop in my hometown, Arc City, 
and they had records in there, and there was Kraftwerk's Computer World. I had never heard of Kraftwerk, <laughs> who are like one of my lifetime favorite groups now, most influential things in the world. And I picked this thing up, and it was exactly that. I was so stricken by what I saw, and I flipped over the back, and there's the picture of them on the back. Is it them, or is it the robots? I don't even know to this day. Is it the mannequin versions of them, or is it really them? And I had to buy it, and it was like only like a year or two old record at that time, and it was pawn shop used price was high. Was yeah. probably I probably paid five dollars for that, which was oh my like, god, right? Yeah, that's like my paper route money. And this is when a brand new record was, you know, eight bucks or something. But I took it home just because of that, because I saw that, and I was like, I have to have whatever this is in my life, and then it changed my life. That that happened to me with Jane's Addictions, Nothing Shocking. Absolutely. That cover art. Which I saw in a review in Rolling Stone. Didn't listen to the album for another year, but it was so memorable. Yeah. The cover art was so memorable, and the name you know, stuck in my head that that was a life-changing album for me. And then even earlier on, I remember U2's Joshua Tree, just that photographic aesthetic on their album, how that's been replicated 100,000 sure. times now, but just how striking that was. Did Anton Corbin take the pictures on that? He did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah come uh, on. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's funny that a, a certain portion of our conversation has involved fashion styling, fonts, well, color schemes. It's part, of, it's part of why these bands make it or don't make it is how they're presented. You only get one chance to sell your band to someone who doesn't know anything about them when they're standing at a record bin. And if this Leather Wolf record here, this nondescript, generic-looking art design is what you see, man, I'm not going to buy that, you know? I mean, some of these actually are, you know... Actually, Spies probably has the most singular of the, of the yeah. albums yeah. in our stack. Yeah. But again, it looks like something that would be on your Dungeon Master's Guide, you know, part exactly. three. Yeah. But that, you know, the fonts, the look, I mean, and it was in the 80s, too. This this particular period is the 80s where the visual was so big because of the MTV factor, you know, so. Well, we mentioned Christopher Cross at the beginning. Yeah. And guy who had a hit right before video. Yeah, thank God for him. He would have never hit. He's this yeah. big, fat, Campbell Soup kid-looking dude with curly hair, and he still is. You've seen him lately. He still looks exactly the same, except he's in golf clothes all the time now, you know what I mean? Uh, we can put a ribbon on this for now. Again, we'll get together in 30 yeah. minutes and talk about the FM uh, 30 minutes, 30 years from now, and talk about <laughs> w- what we weren't hearing in, ni- in 2017. Uh, but thanks for talking music with me, guys. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. You're listening to Peace of My Heart by Rough Cut, a band that is actually out touring right now with upcoming shows in places like Denver and Hollywood as well as a gig on the Monsters of Rock cruise alongside fellow 1980s metal acts like Winger and Queensryche. For more about Rough Cut and all the bands we talked about, including pictures of those awesome album covers, check out the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. And like I said, I'd love to know more about these bands if you were a fan or a musician back in the day. This episode was recorded at KMUW Studios in Wichita. A big thanks to Torin Anderson and John Cyphers of KMUW for helping out with that, as well as my co-hosts Jed Bodwin and Michael Carmody. This episode was produced and edited by Justin Glow. Jan Futterman helps out with the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Hey!